Okay, so we're going to carry on with our study through Mark's Gospel. Let's just uh, bow hearts one more time, shall we, and just commit this time of study to the Lord. Father, we do just ask you to meet with us now, and through your Spirit, instruct us, Lord, teach us, Lord, things that maybe we've not seen before, Lord, clarify things we've not fully understood before, but Father, most importantly, just stir our hearts, Lord, give us a greater love for you than we've ever known and ever had. Lord, as we get closer and get ready, Lord, to see you face to face, Father, we want to love you. And Lord, just put in our hearts that desire. Lord, stir us, we pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, for the light that it is to our paths. And Father, just uh, may it illuminate a little more for us this morning. So we just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I hope you can read that from the back. Um, I'm just joking. I know you can't read that. The reason I put it in there is so that when you look at the slides afterwards, if you want to, uh, you can see. But what you've got there is a list of the 40 miracles that are recorded throughout Scripture uh, in chronological order. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, some of them are recorded in all the Gospels. Uh, in fact, uh, very few are recorded in all, but there are some that are. Um, of course, things like the resurrection is recorded in all the Gospels. Um, but others are recorded in certain Gospels. So you can see where they occur. And uh, it's interesting to notice which Gospel writers focus on which particular things. Um, the bit that's highlighted is where we are this morning as we move into Mark chapter 6. Um, Maybe a little easier. Some of you might just about be able to read that if you've got good eyesight. Um, but we've seen these miracles. So the ones particular that Mark has focused on so far is that the first one, the driving out of the evil spirit um, from that man in Capernaum. Uh, healing Peter's mother-in-law, then the many that were sick, that were oppressed, healing a man with leprosy, if you remember, that was a really big thing because that it required that man to go up to the temple in Jerusalem. Um, that then provokes the interests of the, the uh, Pharisees and the Jewish leadership because they'd never dealt with somebody who'd been healed of leprosy before. Uh, and yet, of course, there was a provision already made in the law um, for when this would happen. And then... From then, Mark goes on to tell us about the, the paralytic who is laid down, uh, lowered down um, from the roof by his friends. Uh, then the man again back into the synagogue with the withered hand that was healed. Um, then we see the storm on the sea, the first storm on the sea, uh, that Jesus miraculously just calms. Um, then last time we saw the man that uh, was possessed with this these multitude, this legion of demonic spirits who's healed. Uh, of course, then Jesus crosses back over as we saw last time. Um, and then heals the woman with the issue of blood um, whilst he's en route to Jairus' daughter, who by the time he gets there has died and then raises her from the dead. Um, and I didn't mention it last time. There is an interesting um, suggestion by some commentators and scholars. Um, they think that lady with the issue of blood may well have been Gentile. And the reason that's suggested is because if she was a Jew, she wouldn't have been accepted amongst the group. Uh, she would have been allowed to mingle with the people because the, the laws, because of this, this problem she had, this issue of blood, she would have been ceremonially unclean. She would have been kind of cast out. Um, so it's a, it's a possibility. Uh, if that is the case, it's interesting because on the way to heal a Jewish daughter, a Gentile is healed. And, of course, that really summarizes Jesus' mission. Of course, he came to the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but Israel rejected Jesus, and the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are being healed. And all of our past, all that the time we've spent trying to find cures in the world, all that is, is dealt with and washed away by the blood of Christ, and we are healed. Uh, and again, it's, a whole, it's all around 
the whole issue of blood, of course, not our blood, but Christ's blood. And then, of course, once that Gentile is healed, then that Jewish daughter is raised to life. Uh, a kind of a prophetic picture, maybe. I'll let you uh, play with that a little further if you want to. So, But we're up as far as Mark uh, chapter 6. Um, so let's just kind of jump straight into the study uh, and we'll go and see see what the Lord has for us here. So he went out from thence and came into his own country. His own country being anybody? Nazareth, yeah? That's where Jesus had grown up. That's where he'd been brought up as a, as a young child uh, after Bethlehem. Contrary to what so many seem to somehow get in their heads, Jesus did not live and grow up in Bethlehem. He didn't stay in Bethlehem. The only reason that Joseph and Mary had gone to Bethlehem was for the census. They didn't have anywhere to stay there. It's unlikely they'd have wanted to stay you know, any longer than the absolute necessity. And of course, we know they didn't because we're told in Scripture they went up to the temple to offer the offering that was required by the law um, after uh, 40 days or so. Um, so they go up to Jerusalem, meet Simeon and Anna, and then we're told by Luke that they returned to their hometown of Nazareth. And, of course, that's where Jesus grew up. Yes, they did go off to um, Egypt for a short while as they're born in a dream, um, but then they come back and they stay in Nazareth. It was there where they, they'd been growing up, where they'd been used to living. So Jesus grows up in Nazareth, but his ministry so far has been taking place very much in Capernaum, um, a little further up the coast. So um, just read the rest of this verse. Verse 2, obviously we're told that the disciples follow him. Okay, And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. So this is not the synagogue that he has been speaking in in Capernaum. This is now in Nazareth. We're told, and many hearing him, were astonished, saying, From whence has this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Now, we'll go on and see. They, they recognized Jesus as this young man that had worked in the carpenter shop of his, of his father, as far as they were aware of Joseph, uh, the earthly Father, the way they perceived it. Now, you can see there, Pernium right at the top of the Sea of Galilee. We looked at this last time. Nazareth now is some way down uh, off to the left on the map. So we're just, just kind of on the edge of the Jezreel Valley. And the last time Jesus was here, incidentally, they tried to take him to the top of the cliff and push him off. Uh, Jesus just walks through their midst and walks away. Um, but uh, this has not been a place where Jesus has been well received, but he's coming back. And all these miracles and everything else, no doubt the stories and the accounts of what's happened have filtered through. And so Jesus turns up on their doorstep, kind of one of their own. And they're questioning, you know, where did he learn all this stuff? You know, there's, there's this chap that just kind of worked down the road. He's suddenly become this great teacher. And for them, it's, of course, a mystery. And they say, verse 3, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? It's interesting at this point, Joseph is no longer mentioned. Now, we don't know what happened. We're not told. Uh, of course, the assumption is that Joseph dies early. Um, we don't know that, um, but it would seem very probable. If that is the case, of course, it means that Jesus went through very traumatic experiences early in life, the kind of things that many of us go through, uh, things we have to deal with. Um, so he grew up, um, obviously, certainly uh, with Mary, uh, and we're told, um, we're told that, is this not the come to the son of Mary, the brother of? Now we're told from an earthly perspective that Mary and Joseph had other children, and we listed some of their names here. James, which we know of, uh, Joseph, and of Judah, who later we know as Jude, at this point not a believer, 
and of Simon. So we've got at least four brothers. And they were told, are not his sisters here with us? Now, we're not told how many sisters, but it's plural, so we know there's at least two. Okay, so he's at least one of seven in his family. And, we're told, and they were offended at him. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, how people don't like others succeeding. You know, it's, it's, it's all right if it's kind of something that we're benefiting from. But sometimes, particularly if somebody, you know, think back to people you knew at school and, you know, you find out they've, they've done really well. And there's, even naturally, there's kind of almost, how on earth did that happen? How did they get there at school? They were hopeless. They, you know, it's kind of idea that's going on here. And they're just amazed that this individual that they've kind of known growing up amongst them. And we, we know from Psalm 69, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus was ridiculed. He he was laughed at in his community. He'd become the song of the drunkards, and so on, we're told in Psalm 69. Verse 4, But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. It's sad that they didn't recognize this incredible opportunity, this incredible situation that Jesus, God manifest in the flesh, was there among them, that he'd chosen to live in their town. And they missed it. Yeah, there's a, there's a great song by Casting Crowns. Some of you will be familiar uh, with it. And I can't remember the title of the song. Some of you may remember. Um, but it speaks about the way that Bethlehem had missed that opportunity, that Nazareth had missed that opportunity. Yeah, and we must have missed that opportunity of recognizing the privilege we have that Jesus comes and dwells in us through the person of his spirit. What an incredible privilege. And it's so easy, isn't it, to go about our everyday life without really understanding the magnitude of that. Just as Jesus has grown up amongst them and now is effectively coming to them that they could, they should be able to realize who he is. But he says that a prophet is not without honor. You know, and others, I, I accept, I know that I'm not going to be recognized here. So sad. They lost that great opportunity. And we're told, interestingly, that he could not, sorry, and he could there do no mighty work. It's not that Jesus' power is limited. It's not that suddenly he is unable to perform miracles. But there's such a, an atmosphere of unbelief. People are not wanting Jesus to work. I'm told, save that he lays his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. So a few people were healed. And then notice this, verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And then we're told he went round the villages, round about the villages teaching. Uh, it's, it's interesting how scripture portrays unbelief as a sin. You know, unbelief isn't just a state of mind where we haven't yet gone to the place where we're convinced. Scripture shows us unbelief is actually rebellion. It's sin. It's refusing to trust in God. Refusing to trust in the things that he has revealed to us. Unbelief is a a dreadful thing. And we as individuals need to be very careful that we never fall into that, that horrible trap of unbelief. The writer of the Hebrews warned us uh, exactly that. We're told, and he called unto him the twelve, his disciples, and again he's 
called by name, he's chosen them, he's appointed them, he's given this opportunity of following after them. We said before that typically a rabbi would select certain individuals and typically they would take the best of the best. You know, the Jewish children, they would go to school, they'd get to a certain point and the rest of most of them would then go off into some sort of profession. The very gifted ones would go on for another couple of years studying. And then after that, they would go off into various jobs. But the very, very best of the best would be given to a rabbi. And they would walk with and learn from that rabbi. And Jesus comes and calls his disciples, who by this point have kind of given up on any idea of being chosen in this way. No doubt, all now out with other forms of employment and ways of making money. We've seen already with a number of them that Jesus called. Jesus calls them and says, come and be my disciple. It's, again, easy for us to kind of miss the magnitude um, for the, the disciples, the privilege of being called to follow a rabbi, someone who was teaching about God. And the idea was that they would learn and one day themselves become teachers. Well, of course, that's what God's plan was, but not in the way that they understood. Verse 8, and commanded them, uh, sorry, uh, let's just back, read that again, verse 7. He called unto the twelve and began uh, to send them forth by two and two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Now, this, this must be phenomenal for these individuals who come from various backgrounds. You know, Matthew, tax collector, and a fisherman, and so on. And commanded them they should take nothing for their journey, save a, a staff only, no script, no bread, no money in their purse. Just go. God is going to provide. Well, that's a step of faith right there, isn't it? You know, it's very much like when Abraham's called and he goes out not knowing where he's going. He just goes because God calls. Wow. Just faith. And his disciples now just step out. And they don't know what they're going to face. They've already seen Jesus deliver people now from unclean spirits. So they've kind of, they've kind of seen it happen. But suddenly to be given the keys of the car, as it were, and said, right, off you go. Uh, this must be a very daunting experience for them. But nevertheless, they trust. They've seen Jesus do so many things now. No doubt their faith has been growing all the way through this. Jesus carries on a system. Uh, be shod with sandals and put not on two coats. You know, don't, don't, don't pack your bag as you're going on a long journey. Just take the bare minimum and off you go. And he said unto them, In what place soever you enter into a house, there abide till you depart from that place. Go, go and stay somewhere. And just stay at that place until you move on from that town and go to another town. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you, when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony. It's, it's a sign. This would be something they were to do that would be visible. A testimony, a sign against them. He said, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus sends the disciples out to go and to evangelize, to preach the gospel, to heal primarily, which is what he's sending them to do. And those that don't respond, that don't want to hear this very chilling warning he's spoken unto them, that it would be more tolerable for the likes of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Why? Well, because it's all dependent upon the light that people are given. And the people that the disciples are going to would have had more light more understanding, more knowledge of spiritual things than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, who of course were involved in all sorts of immorality, immorality and idolatry and so on, and were absolutely deserving of judgment. It's not to say they weren't guilty, but the people that the disciples are going to had more light. And it's like many of the people we go to in the world today. 
A lot of them have had light. They've heard the gospel. Many of them have grown up in environments or families where parents or certainly grandparents, you know, understood, went to Sunday school and those ideas and stories have been passed down. They've been involved in uh, school plays, nativity plays and all sorts of things. They've heard, they've had light, but they've rejected it. And what a terrible thing it is when that sin of unbelief creeps in and people say, I don't want to know. It's a sad, sad situation. And we thought, and they went out and preached that men should repent. Once again, we'll just come in a moment, but this is this uh, gospel of the kingdom that's being proclaimed. And we're told, and they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. This must have been amazing for the disciples. I mean, just people like you and I, ordinary folk, just going out in Jesus' name because Jesus had told them to go and praying with people and people were being healed, anointed with oil and, and so on. Finding people that were possessed with devils and, and dealing with them. And no doubt they would have had all sorts of objections from the authorities and people that knew and so on. It's not a lot different today. We're still called to go out. In fact, we get to the end of Mark's gospel and there's a, a commission given to us to go out and basically do the same as this, to go out in the name of Jesus, to pray for people, expecting them to be healed. To cast out spirits, evil spirits. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. We'll talk about it when we get to the end of Mark's gospel. But the disciples here went out and in faith, they did what they've been asked to do and God worked through them. Now, as you said already, there are two commissions effectively. Firstly, there's the kingdom gospel that's presented. It's that repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the, the, the gospel that John the Baptist preached. It's the gospel that the disciples preach. But the presentation of the gospel, uh, the, the kingdom uh, gospel, as it were, is withdrawn when Israel rejected. Now, there's a couple of places in Scripture we can actually point to, and you can mark almost from that moment where that preaching stops. And now the focus shifts to the Gentiles. And there's a couple of interesting, particularly in Matthew's gospel, we see a very clear divide. And of course, we have the crucifixion, the resurrection, and now a new commission, which is going to be given to the ecclesia or the called out ones, the church. And we have a different gospel that we're preaching. We're preaching the gospel of the grace of God. That whosoever would repent, whoever would turn to Jesus can be saved. Now, when this gospel that we're preaching currently is completed church are going to be taken out, we'll be raptured, we'll go home. And then the first commission will be resumed. Now, specifically, it seems in Revelation, by the 144,000 witnesses, which are, of course, nothing to do with Jehovah's Witnesses. These are 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe that are chosen by the Lord and supernaturally sealed and protected. And they go out during the early part of the tribulation to proclaim this gospel because the gospel now at that point will be that the kingdom of God is at hand. God is about to bring the kingdom down on earth. The, in fact, it's the, the kingdom from heaven or the kingdom of heaven as Matthew speaks of. The millennial kingdom of Christ as he comes and rules and reigns on earth. And of course, when Jesus returns, he will judge the nations and so on as we read in, in Matthew 25, etc. So we are currently 
preaching a different gospel to the gospel that the disciples were preaching and again will be preached. doesn't mean it's any less important. Both of them have their place in God's plan. Of course, when Jesus was there, the message was very much repent because the kingdom is at hand. Now, of course, God understood, God knew the plan that Israel were going to reject. There was going to be this interval, this period of time where Israel's eyes would be blinded. So we'll just carry on. There's a number of scriptures there that detail the new covenant, the new commission that we have um, to go out and to preach the gospel to this world. We go on, and verse 14 says, And King Herod heard of him. So news has traveled down as far as Herod now. We're told, For his name was spread abroad. That's the name of Jesus. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works, uh, and sorry, and therefore, mighty works do show themselves in him. So, Herod's understanding is, well, this this has got to be John the Baptist has come back to life, and he's coming to haunt me. This is effectively what Herod is saying. Um, others said that it was Elijah or Elias, as it's translated here, but Elijah. Others said that it is a prophet, or specifically, or, or, or as one of the prophets. Now. The understanding among the Jews was that Elijah was coming back, which is why Elijah's mentioned. There was another suggestion that there was another prophet uh, referred to, I believe in Matthew's gospel, as that prophet. And they referred to Moses. The idea was that Moses and Elijah were both going to make an appearance at some point in the future. And so they see Jesus step onto the scene. They hear about all these miracles Herod says, well, this must be John the Baptist come back. Just basically the fruit of a guilty conscience. We'll read more about that in a moment. But others were just, well, this, this must be something supernatural, extraordinary. And so they're saying, well, it, maybe it's Elijah or it could be Moses or so on. Now, of course, with Elijah specifically, um, we know that John was the last, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. In a sense, I know we have a dividing line in our Bibles, and we get to the end of Malachi, um, and that's, for us in our heads, the end of the Old Testament. But really, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Period, doesn't end until the end of, until we get to John the Baptist. Uh, that's when everything really changes. Um, and Christ states that John's ministry was the fulfillment of Malachi 3, verse 1. Uh, and, of course, had the nation received Jesus, John would have been the Elijah that God promised, certainly in one sense, because Jesus actually says that John is Elijah if you'll receive it, if you'll understand in the context. And yet there's something even bigger and deeper, because both the nation uh, rejected Jesus, uh, sorry, rejected John and Jesus, that literal and final fulfillment is not going to come until the end times. Elijah will come back. He came, in a, John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, no question. And possibly even wearing Elijah's mantle. Very interesting story behind that. But Elijah will come again. Elijah seems to be very clearly portrayed as one of the two prophets that we read about in Revelation chapter 11 the other one being Moses. And we can deduce that because of the miracles specifically that take place. Those two prophets that will prophesy from Jerusalem for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, this time that is just around the corner for us. We will be taken out of this world. We'll be taken out of the way. And the Bible speaks about the mystery of iniquity that will then be unfolded upon the earth. 
the uh, the power of Satan will be allowed to manipulate the world's systems and governments without the hindrance of the Holy Spirit indwelt church. And these two witnesses then will come to the fore and they will stop the rain for three and a half years. That's what Elijah did. They'll bring all sorts of plagues and so on, which is what Moses did. So it does seem to be that both Moses and Elijah are destined for a return visit. Uh, and it will be during that time that they will do these miracles. At the end of that time, they're going to be killed. Their bodies are going to lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three or three and a half days. Um, and the world is going to have a party. They're going to celebrate. This is going to go global. I mean, BBC News 24, CNN, all these news channels, Sky News, are all going to be broadcasting this. And people are going to be so glad that these two nuisance prophets that kept talking about God and Jesus and righteousness, you know, they, they, they weren't supporting all the things that the world would love us to support nowadays. You know. and, and these two individuals finally are out of the way. The world's going to celebrate. But then as they're looking on their remains, laying there going, <laughs> look, suddenly they're going to be raised to life again. And the world's media are going to go into absolute frenzy and meltdown. And then these two are going to be caught up to heaven. And the world is going to be an absolute shock can't begin to imagine how much impact it's going to have on the the people of the world but they will have been preaching a gospel the gospel of the kingdom those 144,000 will also through that time been preaching that gospel and so on nevertheless this is what they, they, they suggest at this point that Jesus could be Elijah clearly that's not the case but they were just trying to work out they don't understand how this man from Nazareth has got such great learning so they're just clutching at straws almost Now, going back to Herod, we read in verse 16, But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John whom I beheaded, he's risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Oh, this is such a dysfunctional family. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, dreadful programs which I wouldn't even suggest you consider watching on telly. Um, But, you know, where these dysfunctional families are put in the spotlight. Well, the, the Herodians of this family were just a mess. Um, just so you've got it, and I believe it's in the notes for you, there's a number of people that had this title, Herod. Um, of course, Herod the Great is the one that we, we know of from Matthew's account about the children in Bethlehem being killed. Then the other one that we're looking at here is his son, Herod, Herod Antipas. But then there's also Herod Agrippa uh, that we'll see, and then Herod Agrippa the second. And so, who was the one that Paul uh, was stood before and tried that we read about at the end of the book of Acts. Um, so leave the details in there if you want to understand it. And there's a chart as well. And it really is just such a mess. You, you see, Herod the Great had these four wives. Uh, if you come along, the third wife he has there, um, they, between them, have this, this Herod Antipas. Um, the second one, they have Philip. Now, what happens is if you go to the first line and you go down, you see that there's a daughter born, Herodias, and she marries back into the family to Philip. But then Herod Antipas then takes Philip's wife, this Herodias, as his own wife. So it's just the whole thing. It's just a, And John the Baptist, when he comes on the scene, obviously speaks out against this. Let's uh, carry on reading the text. For John has said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias... He's very upset about this now. Uh, had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. She was not in a position. She didn't have the authority to do it, but she really wanted him out of the way. For Herod, 
feared John, knowing that he was a just man. Interesting, isn't it? You know, he doesn't like him, doesn't agree with him, but recognizes there's a godly character here. And a holy, uh, sorry, and holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. You know, there's a fascination sometimes with the world, even if they're in the wrong place and doing the wrong thing. There's something, it really comes down to conscience, doesn't it? Their conscience just cries out. It relates, it recognizes truth when it sees it, even though it doesn't want to accept it. And when a convenient day was come, that Herod, on his birthday, made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. He brought all of his friends together for this kind of party celebration. Uh, when the daughter, sorry, when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced uh, and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, I mean, you've got to wonder what kind of individual this is that he's putting his kind of. Uh, daughter or stepdaughter, I'm not sure quite the relationship there. Um, but either way, you're parading her in front of all these other men to look at her and, and leer at her and so on. Um, but danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him. The king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatever thy will, and I will give it thee. And I was probably expecting she's going to respond with something like, Well, can I have a pony or can I have some chocolate or something? But not expecting the response she gives because. He said, he swear unto her, whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto half my kingdom. Such a rash statement. And she went forth and said unto her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. So you've got Herod expecting this, this young girl to come back and say, I'd really like a horse, please. And she says, can I have John the Baptist's head on a plate, please? I, I mean, just, just incredible situation. And she came straight away with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger, it's on a plate, the head of John the Baptist. <laughs> King was exceeding sorry. But he's now backed himself into a corner because all these officials are there. They've heard this oath that, and so we read. So yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes, which sat with him, he would not reject her. Doesn't want to do it, but he's put himself in a really awkward position now. Really regretting opening his mouth and probably at this point drinking too much and putting himself in that position in the first place. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought and he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charge and gave it to the damsel. I'm sure she was pleased when she received this, but she goes and gives it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. So that's just a bit of background that... We're given by Mark, we're told, and the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, uh, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, so, so just to back up, so that's just a little bit of fill-in that Mark gives us. Uh, again, Peter relaying this to Mark, Mark recording it all down. Uh, but just a bit of the background as to why Herod thought that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist uh, come back to life. So, Okay, so back on track now. The disciples who have been sent out, now come back. The apostles gather themselves together unto Jesus and told him, uh, and just let me clarify, if I may, sorry to digress, apostles is a term that gets very misused in the church today. Um, and you'll find that a lot of people will uh, take that kind of title. Uh, they'll refer to themselves as an apostle. Strictly speaking, from a biblical sense, the apostles were those that had seen and been with Jesus. Okay. That's your definition. So by that definition, today we shouldn't have any apostles, okay, in that sense. Um, it, it's a title that people like to uh, attach themselves. It makes them look very, very important and very special and holy, but it's not really biblical, so I would avoid people that take that title, just as a word of advice. So 
The apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things. <laughs> Isn't it funny? Just, just, it, it's like a, a child coming back and, and saying, Dad, I, I did this and I did this and, and this happened and that happened. Like, yeah, I know. I mean, Jesus would have known all about this. And, and yet they come back so excited. And, and you can almost imagine Jesus just patiently waiting while they all tell him. But isn't that what he's like? That Jesus with us is so patient. And we go to him, you know, when we pray, the Lord answered our prayer. <laughs> yeah, of course I will. I told you to come to me. You know, and sometimes we just like the disciples here. We get so excited. But they come and they share. And Jesus graciously listens. He said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. I love that. They've been out, they've been serving, they've been ministering. And Jesus says, okay, take a break. Slow down, stop. You know, it's very easy to get so involved in ministry and serving and so on that we just keep going and going and going. I was talking to uh, my dad yesterday, my dad in Deal, and um, he was just talking about uh, uh, an account, I think it was uh, Warren Wiersbe, he said he'd been listening to a commentary and Warren Wiersbe uh, announced one Sunday that he wasn't going to be there the following week because he was going on holiday and uh, somebody after the service came up to him and said, well the devil doesn't take holidays <laughs> and Warren Wiersbe pointed out that the devil doesn't have a body that gets weary and tired um, you know, and uh, you know, sometimes we need to take a break it's good for us uh, just to pause, to stop uh, to be refreshed. Um, there's um, a great book. I've only got a few of these. I'm going to try and get some more. It's called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And, uh, you know what, I think we'll, we'll, we'll read this and we'll stop here because there's so much more in this chapter that we're not going to get through it all this morning. Let me just read this to you because you might find this encouraging and helpful and it, it's so applicable here as well. Uh, have you ever wished for a 30-hour day? Surely this extra time would relieve the tremendous pressure under which we live. Our lives leave a trail of unfinished tasks, unanswered letters, unvisited friends, unread books haunt quiet moments when we stop to evaluate what we've accomplished. And we can add to that, of course, to emails and everything else in, in our modern world. We desperately need relief. But would that longer day really solve our problems? Wouldn't we soon just be frust as frustrated as we are now with our 24-hour allotment? We could hardly escape Parkinson's principle. Work expands to fill all available time. I'm sure you've experienced that. I certainly have. Nor will the passage of time necessarily help us catch up. Children grow in number and age to require more of our time. Greater experience in profession and church brings more demanding assignments. We find ourselves working more and enjoying it less. When we stop long enough to think about it, we realize that our dilemma goes deeper than shortage of time. It is basically a problem of priorities. Hard work doesn't hurt us. We all know what it is to go full speed for long hours, totally involved in an important task. And the resulting weariness is matched by a sense of achievement and joy. Not hard work, but doubt and misgiving produce anxiety. As we review a month or a year and become oppressed by the pile of unfinished tasks, we sense uneasily our failure to do what was really important, 
The winds of other people's demands and our own inner compulsions have driven us onto a reef of frustration. We confess quite apart from our sins, we have done those things which we ought not to have done and we have left undone those things which we ought to have done. He goes on and says that a friend of his once said to him, your greatest danger is letting the urgent things crowd out the important. He goes on and says that we live in constant tension between the urgent and the important. He says the problem is that many important tasks need not to be done today, not even this week. Extra hours of prayer and Bible study, a visit to an elderly friend, reading an important book, these activities can usually wait a while longer. But often urgent, though less important tasks, call for immediate response. Endless demands, uh, sorry, demands pressure every waking hour. A person's home is no longer a castle, a, a private place away from urgent tasks. And he speaks about phones, the way the phones kind of intrude and things. Well, I mean, now bring that to the modern with, with emails and social media and, uh, and mobile phones. Yeah, we just don't get away from any of these pressures, do we? And he goes on and says that in the light of eternity, uh, their momentary prominence fades. With a sense of loss, we recall the important tasks that have been shunned, uh, shunted aside. And we realize that we've become slaves to the tyranny of the urgent. And he says, is there any escape from this pattern of living? He says, yes, the answer lies in the life of our Lord. And he goes on to talk about the way that Jesus found time to rest. He found time to get away from all the demands that were upon him. However busy Jesus was, he found time to rest. And maybe it's something we need to pray about and to explore because probably all of us this morning could do with a break we could all do with just some time out and maybe we need to come and sit at jesus feet and learn how he handled his time how he prioritized things and a lot of it if we go on the the book goes on to speak about the importance of prayer the need to get away and get alone with god and the way that god will sustain us and strengthen us and give us rest and look at this gracious Lord here in verse 31. As these disciples come back, excited, full of adrenaline, but no doubt a little weary too from the journey. They come and he says, come aside. Come into a desert place. Let's just, just shut everything else out for a moment and rest. Let's, uh, let's leave it there this morning. Let's pray for each other over the the days and the weeks ahead, that the Lord would help us to find that rest in Christ. It's not just stopping. It's not just getting more sleep. Those things are nice, and some of us would love that very much. But we're talking about something much deeper than just a bit of physical respite. We're talking about some spiritual rest for our souls, that we can be refreshed, whatever our circumstance. Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity and the privilege of being able to come into your presence and worship you. Lord, thank you for leading us in our worship this morning into your presence, Lord, such a, a privilege. And thank you, Father, for your word that just reminds us, Lord, of our need for you in every area of our lives. Father, thank you for your plan from the before the foundation of the world. Thank you, Lord, for the part that we play in your plan right now. And Father, we do pray that just as you called your disciples some 2,000 years ago, just to come aside and rest, Lord, we pray that for us this morning, that you would call us aside into a, a desert place 
Lord, just cause us to find time with you, to sit, to sit and to stop, to shut out the noise of this world, just to hear your voice and be refreshed. Lord, your yoke is easy, your burden is light, and Father, so many of us carry a great load of care that really is not ours to carry. So Lord, just teach us these things. Help us, we pray. Refresh us, restore us. And take us, Lord, now to that place of rest, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we'll pick up from there. Lord willing, next week. May God richly bless you through this week.